Welcome back to the Abundant Culture Podcast, where business owners like you come to learn how to grow the valuation of their companies so they can sell in the future. On this show, you'll learn how to sell for top dollar and invest in profitable businesses around the country. Now, here are your hosts, Jazz and Joe. Hi, Mehul, and thank you again for coming on to the Abundant Culture Podcast. We are super excited to have you today because we love, love, love small business, and that's what you're all about. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, we have to ask you, like, what's your backstory? Give us that entrepreneurial journey. Well, first of all, thank you to Joseph Jasmine. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here. Number one, as far as, yeah, let me give you the backstory a little bit. So my story really started when I went to London. I went to London in the mid 80s. My uncle owned a youth hostel in London. He owned two of them. One was in a really nice location, like near Westminster Abbey. One was in not such a nice location, but it was a lot of fun. And I remember the manager for the one that wasn't in the greatest location was going back to France for the summer. So my uncle asked me if I could help watch one of the hostels. Give me a good experience. Let me go to Europe. So anyway, long story short, I booked all these students at the youth hostel and so on. And then I went around Europe, had a great time. And I said, you know, I'd love to be an international business one day. Because before then, I was thinking like I wanted to be a sports reporter and some other things. And I got into this international business thing. And uh, so I looked for a job and I got a job, not really with a big, uh, with a big trading company that did uh, products, but I got in with a big trading company that traded oil and metals and gold. And that was Drexel Burnham Lambert. That was in the late 80s before, right before Michael Milken had the junk bond crisis and crashed Drexel. So I worked for Drexel Trading in New Jersey. That's where I was from. I was from New Jersey. And I assisted some of the top foreign exchange and gold traders in the world. I mean, some of them are still very famous today. And I worked as a clerk in the back office and I made all their payments and so on. So then I did finally get promoted to the trading desk. And Drexel crashed. They had the junk bond crisis and Milken crashed it. So what happened? Well, they, the owners of Drexel Trading signed a deal with Greenberg, who was the chief executive of AIG uh, at that time. AIG was an insurance company, still is. So we became AIG Trading and they wanted to make some slots for some of the people, some other traders with Harvard degrees and all. So they threw me out of the trading desk. Of course, I got upset and I went to Makata Metals. Now, Makata Metals was owned by Standard Charter Bank, original member of the New York uh, Bullion Exchange, London Exchange. And they were owned by Standard Charter. And I went there. They hired me as a junior trader on the desk. 
and they said, we're going to give you six months to show what you can do. They said, you seem to be in a little slow pace type thing. So we're going to put you in options. So they put me on the desk in gold options. And I thought I was doing well, but my boss wasn't making money. And I felt like after six months, he wanted to extend his stay there. So he eliminated me and I'll never forget it. They called me in to the uh, HR office. And in those days, you know, those were the days of slamming phones. They had a cigar outside of the HR's office as they fired me and told me that my services were no longer required. Well, it's interesting. A couple of days before, I had kind of known that things might not go great there. And I had that dream based on what I did in London of having that trading company. So I bought a desk, brought it down to my parents' basement, lived in New Jersey, and set it up. So that day I got fired at Makata, I went right to One World Trade Center. By the way, it was around the exact location where the planes hit that first tower, something like the uh, 80-something floor of One World Trade Center. And I went there because I was taking classes at the same time I was working for Makata with Joe Kay. Joe Kay was New Jersey Exporter of the Year. And in those days, you didn't have the web, you didn't have Amazon. So how it would work is you would turn around, let's say, and you wanted to export blue jeans to Africa, you would turn around and you would send telexes out all night saying, we've got these jeans if you want to buy them. So, okay, you used to export blue jeans, electronics. And he taught a class as New Jersey Exporter of the Year, how to write letters to people overseas and get them interested in your product. You're going to trade it. So I took that class. And uh, when I got fired that night, I went home and my dad said, you know what? You've got a desk. I didn't have a product. I didn't have a service. I had nothing, but I had a desk and an idea. So what did I do? Well, my father was in the polyvinyl chloride business and he was ex uh, working with plastics and all. So I asked him, I said, dad, got any contacts overseas that want to buy like plastic scrap or regrinds or stuff that you guys don't use in manufacturing. So he tried to hook me up. That didn't work out. Finally, a couple years later, I was sending these letters overseas. I was getting leads from the Department of Commerce through a service, and I'd write a really nice letter. I'm exporting your products. I found a guy who wanted to buy a filter press, a machine. He wanted to he wanted to take metal slurry and run it through the machine and extract metals. And he was in Taiwan, but he was indicted for tax evasion, so he couldn't leave. So he sent his nephew, who was a Haagen-Dazs ice cream salesman to the U.S. to buy a filter press. My father had lost his job, so he was helping me. And we were going around showing this Haagen-Dazs guy all these filter presses. We sold one. It took six months. And that's when I realized that business is about networking and making connections. And it, if it takes six months to sell a machine, who knows when you're going to get the next sale? That's when I realized we need product that if we make a connection, they're going to move faster. We need repeat orders. 
So anyway, I was broke. And as time went on, my dad came home one day and he was like, you're not going to make it. You got to shut this down and go back to work. And my mother, of course, was like, no, he's going to make it. He's going to make it. And I had sold my car. I was driving hers one day. I was reading this magazine and a gentleman who had products for this company called Felpro, they made these little adhesive that you use in aerospace or you see them at stores, these little anaerobic adhesives for thread locking and so on. And he wanted to sell them overseas. So he put an ad in a magazine and I was just reading this industrial magazine And it said, this guy, Ron Anderson, wants to sell his stuff overseas, contact him. Well, my father had a guy in India. That's our background. We came from India. I was born in the U.S., but we have Indian background. And my father, he was um, connected to a guy who was a real smart guy, studied in the U.S., got his Ph.D., went to India and started a distribution company for different products. And I knew he was coming to the U.S. So anyway, long story short, I connected Ron Anderson and this guy at Newark Airport. They never did any business together, but Ron said, boy, you introduced me to such a good guy, but we already had something going in India, my boss said, and whatever, right? Six months later, Ron Anderson calls me. I'm on my last time. He says, you know what? I've got a lead here. This guy wants to sell something to the Italian Air Force, his paint that he's making. He's in Milan. But the Air Force wants a whole package of products. One of them is mine, too, Felpro product. And he contacted me, but I only have Felpro, and he wants 3M and this and that. He says, do you want this lead? If it comes to anything, just remember me someday, right? I get this lead from him, and I said, of course I want it. So I was broke. And so I went to the library. We didn't have internet. And I looked up on Thomas's register, which is like now thomas.net. And I looked up in all these books where to get these products. And it took me weeks because I had all the wrong people for all the wrong products. But finally, I found the 20 products that uh, this gentleman in Milan wanted. I quoted him. He promised me an order for in two weeks. It took him six months to get me the first order the first order the day before I was getting married. And then, you know, I was living in my parents' house, made the big mistake of moving my wife in there. Never do that because that didn't work out too well, but I was broke. I looked at her first check after we were married. It was like, I thought she was a big biochemist by education. She was a fragrance chemist. I saw the check for 17,000. I said, "Uh uh-oh. And I had sold my car. I didn't tell her that either. I was using my mom's car. And here we were broke. And I got that first order. I think we both wanted to get out of each other's uh, house kind of thing. And so uh, she said, we got to get our own apartment. And I, I had been to California once. So I said, I'd love to go out to California. I said, let's go to L.A. And, you know, that L.A. time was the time of Rodney King and the earthquake and the traffic and the O.J. trial. So she said, no, I'm not going to L.A. I said, well, I had San Diego in my back pocket. She said, "Okay, I'll go to San Diego. So we drove out here minus 10,000, 
took me 18 months to develop the second account I got. There was a maintenance facility down across the border in Mexico, and I had joined the San Diego World Trade Center, and they told me about it. That place was in and out of mismanagement. Anyway, I went down there once. I got an appointment. I met an ex-Chicago policeman, and he was a buyer of aircraft parts, but he hated aircraft chemicals. So I embellished a little bit what I did with the Italian company uh, in terms of scope, but I had done it. I had got my first order for 20 items. And uh, I got back to my apartment, and he called me, and he said, okay, you came here. You told me you can do all this. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you 24 hours to quote 50 more items. And if you don't do it, you're out. If you do it, I'll give you an order and we'll get things going. So I ran to the library, got the Thomas's register out again. I quoted all these items. Like I was going, calling all the wrong people again. And I, I realized it's not just 20 items. There's thousands of items out there. I got the first order for 50,000. I said, how am I going to deliver this product? Mexico. I don't have a warehouse. So I came up with an idea. I called a trucker. I said, if I use your warehouse, would you, and I use your truck to deliver it to the border, can I use your warehouse? He said, sure. So that's how I got my first warehouse, which wasn't my warehouse. And I got the order. I consolidated all the stuff. I shipped it down to Mexico. One day he called me. He said, look, I like steak. I like meat. I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, you heard me. I like meat. Well, of course, he wanted a nice dinner. So I took him out to the house, down to Ruth Chris, met him down there. And during our dinner, he was telling me about an ex-Hong Kong policeman who's in the business that had bought some parts for him, but he knew also bought chemicals. So he told me these guys' name. And I said, I've heard of that guy. Because I had gone through the U.S. Department of Commerce, which was a great place to get leads. And I said, uh, you know, can you hook me up in Asia because I want to do business there being close to L.A. So they had given me a list of accounts I paid for, for it, a service. And that guy, Calvin, that his name was on that lead list. So anyway, my big break came that night. I drove home from Ruth Chris. I walk into a 200-square-foot apartment. I open the apartment door, and there was a fax that came from Calvin in Hong Kong at the same time. And these people hadn't spoke to each other in five years. They had had a falling out. And it said, good morning, we're interested in your company. So I knew Asian people love a reference. So I called. He called Scotty, the ex-Chicago policeman, Scotty validated that he gave me $50,000 worth of orders and then I delivered. And for the next year, they used me to find the hardest items that they couldn't find. And even the ones that were discontinued, I found replacements and I was able to give traceability to the replacement. So he was from Hong Kong. His wife was Filipino. They had left a big company and started their own around the same time I did, but they were growing like crazy. They had investors and they were doing more than aircraft chemicals and these little adhesives. They were doing landing gear, aircraft engines, aircraft lavatories, representing big companies. So they didn't really want to deal with the chemicals because they're hazardous, they're specialized, 
if you import them to Hong Kong, how do you re-export them to the Philippines? You have to go through a lot of paperwork. So they wanted a small guy or lady that they could trust, someone who they could give a commission who wouldn't hurt them by going around them. And after a year, they introduced me to all of the companies in Asia, Singapore Airlines, China Airlines, Malaysian Airlines, Biman Bangladesh, uh, you name it, Garuda, Indonesia. Uh, it was in all the aircraft maintenance facilities. So suddenly I took that business from $5,000 in my mother and father's basement probably to around two to $3 million. And we started exporting 3M advanced materials and products. We got an account number. So we went from being a broker to a distributor. Our next big break came when 3M Domestic decided that they didn't have enough staff to service all the small maintenance facilities in the U.S. direct. So they named the first five domestic distributors and based what I and we had done on the export side for them, we got recommended. We were the last person to get a shot. And in the first two years, we did more than all of them combined. Why? Because we had a lot of inventory. I rolled the dice. That's why you can see I don't have too much hair left here. Rolled the dice. And we became one of the largest aerospace distributors for 3M Aerospace. So then we were working those Asian international markets. We opened up South America. We opened up the U.S. And in the U.S., we diversified not only to aircraft maintenance facilities and airlines, but to the military, the DLA, the GSA, the Defense Department, uh, these, the satellite builders and their subcontractors, the SpaceX type of companies. If you own a small business and you might be looking to sell, you could run into some major issues. Forbes estimates that 9 out of 10 businesses listed never actually sell. Why? Because there's only one way to sell. You need to do these four steps first. So if you want to be a part of the 10% of businesses that sell for profits, we've created a free checklist for you so you can sell without those hurdles that normally hold you back. Download the free checklist by visiting www.abundantculture.co forward slash checklist. We took that business, I took it from 5000 to $8 million. I, I developed a staff of about 14 I bought my own building in 2007 because we needed to store that hazardous material. We wanted to open a repackaging operation. We were really doing well until about 2009 or 10 when the world crisis hit. We were still doing well, but our bankers weren't doing that well, and so they were tightening up the cash flow by tightening up the credit lines, which was hurting our expansion versus the companies that had deeper pockets. And if you see that trend really continued right until today, bigger companies are getting bigger and the smaller ones, unless you're really small, you work from your home, that's great. If you're that middle-sized company, you're you're struggling to find your space. So I knew that we either had to downsize or we had to tie our 
cart to a more powerful horse. So in 2016, July, I sold this company to a $150 million French company from Lyon, France. And so we took that 21 years and it's going for four more slight name modification. They put their name in front of it. But that's our story, how we took it from 5,000 in that first order all the way to 8 million. And since I sold it, I'm very excited about giving back to the small business community. And so I've, like you, started, uh, you know, making some podcasts and so on. So anyway, that's the crux of the story there. That is a very awesome story. Yeah, I didn't even know all the details when we uh, spoke on the phone. I feel like I only got a piece of the story on the phone, but um, that was very inspiring to hear just Mm -hmm. to, you know, start with a small desk um, and $5,000 and grow this, you know, multi-million dollar company out of that is really cool. Uh, One of the questions that I had just to uh, clarify for not only myself, but my audience as well. So you were doing uh, international trade where you basically brokering uh, deals between two companies, one maybe domestic and one um, that's overseas and where you basically the middleman between the two who was uh, getting materials maybe from America to these other countries? Or can you kind of expand on, a little bit on how that worked a little bit? Joseph, that's a great question because I did try with those other products that I was trying from the parents' basement to set up deals where I didn't have to take any inventory and put it between two companies not in these aircraft adhesives and tapes and so on that we specialized in for 21 years. But when we were selling that filter press and those type of things, I tried to bring two parties together and pull a commission out of it. And what I found is a lot of the time, the two parties would thank you for your time and services, but they would, if it was worthwhile, they would go direct with each other and you could be left out of the mix and was left out of the mix. I got burnt, frankly, a couple of times like that. So to answer your question, when I started doing these little glues and adhesives and advanced materials, I realized that I would have to do it differently. I would have to take inventory of these products. I'd have to generate enough cash to have inventory and put them out. I I didn't always have inventory. I mean, I, sometimes I'd write a PO, I'd buy it, get it as quick as possible and then ship it out. And I do drive it, drop ship to end users as you build the base, but I never relied on that drop shipping and all. I always realized that you had to add value. The way to add value was to have it in stock in your warehouse. The other thing that made it a little bit different is these aircraft chemicals are not that easy to handle. I'll tell you why. It's not the glue that's difficult. Sometimes it's the same glue you could find at Home Depot. The fact that when an aircraft company buys them, like let's say an airline buys them, they find those what they need to buy in a manual. It's like when you buy your car, Boeing tells them or Airbus what they have to buy, a bill of materials. Well, what they need with that 
and this is also goes for government orders, is the paperwork. The paperwork is more important than the part. The test reports, the batch number, the lot number, the shelf life left on the product. So we then became an expert of those, uh, what do you call it, uh, advanced services or value-added services, I should say. And by stocking and adding those value-added services, because we understood the test report and all of the things that our end users need, that put us in a position where we were not going to be left out of the mix. Awesome. So another thing I was wondering is like, so if somebody wanted to get into this international trading business, what are some of the first steps that they should take towards uh, actually being a part of this industry? Well, what you want to do, I, I, I referenced it earlier and they still do it. The U.S. Department of Commerce is a great starting point because each city has a branch of the U.S. Department of Commerce. And depending on what your commodity is, whether it's aerospace or golf or whatever you're into, somewhere in a state is the lead area which services that business. And those Department of Commerce have rep and other countries, other where the U.S. embassies are, there are branches. So their job is to promote U.S. exports and network you with that. I also referenced the World Trade Center. It wasn't just New York. All these states have a World Trade Center somewhere. San Diego World Trade Center, Los Angeles World Trade Center. And they always have a department in there that's geared toward export. So I would start with the U.S. Department of Commerce, the World Trade Center. And of course, now with Internet, you can look up so many resources uh, to network yourself. But it's still all about networking. Yeah, I can definitely see the the networking aspect, like while you were telling us your story, because it, it was like relationship led to the next relationship, which led to the next relationship and like the big sale. Uh, so I, I love that you you mentioned the network and the relationships aspect of it, because I definitely see how it lined up within your journey. That's, I, as I was telling Joseph and I, when we had our preliminary call that's what it's all about right it's, it doesn't matter whether you're in real estate you're in golf clubs you're in aerospace you're in advanced materials ultimately you want to take your product from point a and move it to point b whether you're a manufacturer you're a broker whether you're a distributor and how are you going to get it from point a to b you're going to have you're going to network yourself or have someone within the organization that is a networking person. I mean, that's really what it's about. Yeah, for sure. So can you tell us more about the process of selling your business? Because uh, we don't get to hear like the stories of business owners selling uh, too often. So we love to get like your take. How did it make you feel? You know, what, what was the process like for you? I'll tell you what it was like. When I was a 3M distributor, I went to a 3M meeting and 3M was saying, hey, you distributors should create a online shopping cart for your 3M product. 
And we have a company, and they happen to be in San Diego, that was by coincidence, that we align with that know our business, and they could partner with you. And I'm not a computer guy, but like through Magento and this and that to, you know, upload your shopping cart and so on. So I'm like, yeah, that's great. And then later you call the company and find out, yeah, we could do this easily. 3M recommended you. That's great. Here's what it costs. $28,000. I'm like, what? This was before I sold the company. So I turned around to my wife and I said, you know what? We got to do this, but we don't have the 28,000 extra dollars because everything is tied up in the cash flow to sustain the company. So to be quite honest, we leveraged an existing 401k and we raised that $28,000 and we made that shopping cart through this company and they made an online cart. And what happened was it looked like a big, big company suddenly. You had a nice shopping cart for all these materials. So when the French company that I ultimately ended up selling this business was looking for a company, they came looking for a, they had a division already they bought in West Dallas, uh, Wisconsin, right outside of uh, Milwaukee. And that was a 3M converting division for tapes and so on, but it wasn't geared toward aerospace. So the guy who was working there was called by his management in France and said, look, we want to get in the aerospace business. I think we need a West Coast presence. And we're a big 3M distributor in Europe. So we'd like someone who was tied to 3M and we're looking for probably around a $20 million company. So the guy went online, typed West Coast 3M distributor company, and there's my $28,000 website came up with all the bells and whistles. You know, and you're broke, but here comes the website, right? And so he said, oh, this, this has got to be a $20 million company to have this kind of website. You know, he didn't know that we were only an $8 million company, you know? So Paul, they came for a visit, and he, he said, you know, you're a little smaller than I thought, but boy, you guys know what you're doing. You got a nice building. You got a nice warehouse. Your team knows what they're doing. They're in all these big accounts. So he told his boss in France. And then, of course, I met the owner when he flew out to the U.S. And, you know, we started the discussions. Another company had contacted me, a U.S. company, one of my competitors. But I didn't like their philosophy because they wanted to just buy the customer list and the vendor list and then shut the business down because they were established in the U.S. where the French company wanted to buy the whole operation, which would allow me to keep my employees that I had had for years and so on. And so that's how we got that first contact. We put 28000 in the website. They came out and the rest is history. That's awesome. And that's something that I always find interesting, you know, when business owners, a lot of times when they're thinking about selling their company, 
one of the things that's on the top of their mind is to make sure that their staff and the people that they're leaving behind are taken care of. So I definitely commend you uh, for doing that. I think that's awesome. So we went over, you've told us uh, so much during this podcast episode. If somebody was uh, thinking about just this industry in general, what should be one of the number one takeaways that they should get from just hearing from you? For the aerospace industry or small business in general? Actually, you could give us one for both. Well, I think, what, and I go back to the same point I made before, which is any one market you get in, even aerospace, it's a long road. It takes so long for your connections to establish. I didn't even tell you about, you know, when, remember I was saying my father said he's not going to make it and my mother said we will Well, to keep the father quiet, I was delivering food on the side, going from door to door, picking up at restaurants or delivering food. And when I came out to Southern California, I was selling Encyclopedia Britannica. We had one car and my wife was home crying. She missed her family and here on out selling a commission set on the weekend just to keep this business going. So the road is long. You will probably have to have a second, third, and fourth job, right? Especially because I never wanted a partnership with friends or family or their money. I never wanted to mix business with pleasure. I always wanted to build it on my own. So I would rather work a second, third, and fourth job. Then it's going to take, I think, up to maybe sometimes five to seven years to really see that hard work go into getting to where you start to get a return on your investment. So if you're not prepared for that long journey, you shouldn't get into it. The next thing you have to realize is when you prepare for that long journey and you get to it, when you're doing everything yourself, even when you do it wrong, you feel great because you're doing it and you work. Hiring people to work for you for me, it was another journey because people that work for you and there's wonderful people, not all of them. So you go through a lot of them that aren't what put in the effort that you needed until you find the ones that do. And that takes another five, seven years. When you get to that point, then you face that third challenge, which is now I have this huge payroll and so on. How do I compete with these bigger companies that have much deeper pockets? My answer, when you get to that point and you have that problem, you've done it right to get to that point and have that problem. And that's when, you know, other companies will come talk to you about buying your business and you'll have a great feeling for all the hard years of work that you've put in. That is so true. It is it's definitely a long journey. And those five to seven year marks is uh, they definitely feel true because I'm coming up on my fifth uh, very soon. So I, I definitely know the feeling. Yeah. So since you're on the Abundant Culture podcast, we always feel the need to ask this question because we always get very interesting and unique answers. And the question is whether it be in your personal life, in your business or um even in your spirituality, how do you like to spread abundance? Spread abundance in terms of my business. I just love sharing my story with other people because I feel that 
that success story will give some other person the driver to go out and get it. I love that. I'm a Mets fan, not a Yankee fan, but I love that line that Derek Jeter had, who, who was the captain of the New York Yankees, when he said, there may be a lot of players that are better than me, but nobody will ever outwork me. And that's what I feel like, you know, you can have an abundance of successes, but you have to have the horsepower in your belly. That's why I started my podcast called Small Business Horsepower, because I feel that having that horsepower in your gas tank is full and you're ready to go to battle, you're ready to go to war every single day, that's what you need to make that success. And I feel like I want to tell my story so that other people can get their success. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's much needed. <laughs> yeah, and whoever's listening, make sure you go listen to uh, his podcast. It's called Small Business Horsepower, correct? Right. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Tumblr, Google, you name it, Podbean, <laughs> Small Business Horsepower. You can also find them on my website, which means a little rearranging, I admit, but uh, it's going to be smallbusinesshorsepower.com. You know, uh, so smallbusinesshorsepower.com, and you can find us. We've got 13 episodes in the hopper i've had some wonderful guests on there and i look forward to having you two on my podcast so i can hear your story thank you so much we're excited to be on it <laughs> so thank you again mayhill so much for coming onto the podcast and giving us and our audience a wealth of knowledge because your story is absolutely amazing. We loved hearing it. I kind of envisioned like a movie in my head as yeah. you were telling me. So thank you again for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. Take care. If you don't diversify your investment portfolio, you could end up losing it all. But most business owners don't know how to diversify to mitigate those risks. That's why we created this resource for you. This passive investing guide is a must-have if you're planning to invest in businesses. Don't hesitate. If you have more than 25 grand liquid, then you can't afford not to take advantage of this resource. Download the four reasons why in 2021 you need small businesses in your portfolio now by going to www.abundantculture.co forward slash guide. Thank you for listening to the Abundant Culture Podcast with Jazz and Joe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave an honest rating and review. And remember, we're ready to buy your business. So if you're ready to sell or passively invest in other small businesses, go to AbundantCulture.co for more information. We publish episodes every Friday, so we'll see you next week.